this is Andy, and welcome to the newest season of the podcast. We're so excited to be sharing some incredible behavioral therapy programs for you to learn about. And whether you're just interested in learning and getting educated, or whether you're actually evaluating some programs, this should truly be an interesting, inspirational, educational season. So if you have any questions, feel free, as always, to reach out to me at Andy at We'd really appreciate it if you gave us a good review on Apple Podcasts so it could reach more people. And sit back and enjoy. Hi, this is Andy, and welcome to the Wilderness Therapy and Residential Treatment Journey Podcast. Today we're talking to Patrick Barrasso. We wanted to find out more about different programs around the country. And this one focuses on um, therapeutic boarding schools. And so Patrick is the founder and executive director of In Balance Academy. It's based in Tucson, Arizona, focusing on young men 13 to 17 especially those with substance abuse or other co-occurring disorders, which are mental health disorders. And Patrick is a psychotherapist with over 25 years of extensive training and experience with adolescents and adult substance abuse and mental health treatment. Pretty impressive uh, background and duration. Uh, his program has some pretty unique things that we're gonna talk about today. Um, and, but first I wanted to welcome Patrick to the show. Welcome Patrick. Well, thanks Andy. Glad to be here. Glad to help uh, your audience better understand the complexities of young people in today's, in today's environment. Excellent. So, um, tell us, uh, about your background and what led you to create Imbalance Academy. Okay. So I start off as, uh, a volunteer in 1981, I was, uh, I had, uh, I think it's safe to say I had a challenging adolescence and I had a, a coach that reached in there and, and really made a difference in my life. And so somewhere along the line, I said, if I get out of this period of adolescence alive, I'm going to be that for somebody else. So I started volunteering at the juvenile court for a program, uh, for first-time offenders that didn't have dads and I saw a young person sort of make a different life decision based partially on my relationship and I was sold I said you know seeing that light bulb go off and that young person um, being an, a witness to it that's what I want to do for the rest of my life and uh, so that was 81 so here I am so I went through my undergraduate degree, my graduate degree, I worked at the juvenile court in detention as a probation officer. While I was working my way through college, I started uh, in a children's home after that, uh, which was really taking children that had been significantly abused and trying to help them in a residential setting. Uh, they have more or less been orphaned. Um, and then I did my clinicals at another program that was a therapeutic kind of boarding school and I sat awake at night thinking there's got to be a better way to treat kids. Uh, there's got to be a better way. And so in 91, I started to picture a better way. 
Um, and so for 15 years, you know, I took my education, training, experience, you know, and in 2004, I think I found a better way and we opened up the academy. And, and in 2008, we opened up a transitional living program, which is in Tucson. The academy is actually out by Tombstone. It's 123 acres. I wanted it to feel, I, nature is a great healer. We're going to talk about that, I think, in terms of wilderness. But all the information kept leading me back to this idea that nature is a great healer. So when I opened up the academy, I found an old dude ranch, uh, 200 acres. I wanted equine to be part of it. I wanted to specialize in young people that had uh, mental health and substance abuse. Um, and I wanted it to feel just like, you know, kind of a hybrid between a boarding school and a treatment experience. So I didn't want it to feel institutional and it doesn't. So today, um, you know, I'm proud of what we've built. We started as an outpatient program, Andy, in 96. So I started doing intensive outpatient, specializing in adolescence. Um, and then, you know, the ranch uh, was realized that vision, the academy, um, was realized in 2004 and uh, we've been in operation ever since. We serve about 48 kids out there. Um, and then in Tucson, we have a transitional living program serves about 24 kids. Those are kids that are either, you know, coming out of the ranch or coming out of other programs that just need a launching pad in recovery. And so that program is in Tucson. And then we have a collegiate recovery program for those kids that want to go to the U of A and they're in recovery. So they need a, a place that's safe for them. Um, and then we have a sober living. It's like a fraternity that uh, doesn't have drugs and alcohol, um, you know, that's based on the principles of 12-step recovery, right, by the University of Arizona. And so kids can feel really a sense of community, college, collegiate, you know, and, and, uh, and be sober and happy and so it's a pretty big continuum wow that's excellent so thanks for the background and you kind of bled into my second question about your the program description a little bit which is great can you tell me you know um some of the things that make it unique other than focusing on young men and and the ages 13 to 17 and and you gave me a description in terms of equine therapy and being outside and things like that. But if, if I had a 13 to 17 year old son who, you know, had some su substance abuse or other co-occurring disorders, why would I consider your program or why should so I? Great. So great question. So um, one of my heroes uh, in the field is the head of NIDA. So NIDA, as you know, is the arm of our federal government that studies substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And um, I always get her name wrong, so I hope she forgives me. Um, but it's it's Nora Balco, I think. Is Am I saying that right? But I always pronounce it wrong. Um, but anyway, so there's a really effective arm of our government that studies this because it's such a pervasive issue, you know? And so they came up with, just recently actually, um, the National Institute of Drug Abuse came up with principles of adolescent substance use disorder treatment. 
and it's a research-based guide. And the reason I share that is because what makes this unique, I think, is that, uh, you know, my background's in psychotherapy. So I, I, I don't drink or use drugs, but I don't come from a recovery background. I don't come from the addiction background. I come from a developmental background. So everything we built at the academy is developmentally appropriate. So what makes this unique is we can take a young person and our typical young person has you know, trauma, they have substance abuse, they have mental health, um, you know, they have uh, you know, family issues. And so we treat the whole person equally. We have a robust academic program, my background, I had a learning disability and that played a role in, in my childhood experience, my adolescent acting out. So I wanted to build a school. We have, you know, Dean of Students. We have a robust schoolhouse. Um, we have teachers that are very individualized. We have a clinical team that I think is one of the best in the country that uses different evidence-based practices, motivational interviewing, uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, trauma-based therapies. Uh, we have an equine program that I studied a lot, Andy. And, and what, what the benefits of riding horses and working with horses, I could spend an hour talking about those benefits. I started experimenting with that program with hardcore gang kids. I had a contract with the juvenile court and I'd bring these kids out and would start some equine you know, uh, uh, psychotherapy modalities. And, and the, I love these kids and they'd be really frightened, but they wouldn't want to show it. And we could just break it down. We could do some really intense therapy with them. And it was beautiful. Hmm. Um, so I wanted equine to be part of it. it, makes us unique. And it's not just that we do some metaphoric work with horses, Andy, the kids become skilled riders. So they have like five different levels. Cause one of the Psychosocial needs of adolescents is, is purpose and power. Now, what I mean by power is to feel empowered, to feel agency. Most of our young people come to us with a really diminished sense of self. And if they're responsible for sort of caring for, taking care of, and then mastering, and mastery is also an, another a psychosocial need of adolescents, they feel really good about themselves. And then, you know, another pillar of the program is 12-step exposure. I feel strongly, and it comes from an evidence-based 30 years of research, that if kids that have moderate to severe substance abuse, if we don't help them fully understand the benefits of this amazing program called 12-step recovery, then often they'll go home and they'll feel lonely and disenfranchised from the larger community and go back to using. I mean, it just is. So we do really a good job of creating a 12-step experience, exposure experience that's developmentally appropriate. We're not, if a kid comes on our campus and says, hey, I'm not an addict, cool. I don't know if you are or not, but we're gonna make it exciting for you to practice 12-step experience and, and the principles. We're gonna take you to meetings, we're gonna take you to conferences, 
And at the end of the time, if you decide to be sober, even one day after imbalance, you'll have a bunch of friends that will want to be with you in that endeavor. You won't feel lonely and you won't feel sad. So what makes us unique, I think, is that we cover all the bases, the clinical expertise, the family systems approach, uh, the incorporation, which means after a child leaves a program, they have to incorporate to, to put in the body of this newfound principle. We cover mastery and purpose, and we also use a positive peer culture, which means that Patrick is the owner CEO is no more important than the kid that's leading a meeting, truthfully. Like it's not a top down system, it's a strength based system. So we really, in a sophisticated way, take this model of positive peer culture that I think is the greatest model that was ever put into the field of adolescence by two brilliant men and basically said, give kids agency and they'll be really agents of change, which is really consistent with my philosophy and my belief, which is also consistent with the philosophy and the value system of 12-step recovery. The wounded healer is the best agent of change sometimes, right? Sure. So one of the things I had in my notes was to dive in and ask a little bit more about this positive peer culture because I hadn't heard it about, about it before. Can you go a little deeper and explain more about what that is other than saying that people are on the same level? What does that mean and how does it empower and build confidence in, in kids? I'd love to. So when I, you know, first started in the field, obviously I talked about, you know, being at the juvenile court. So I was in detention. So it's a very top down behavioral kind of approach. You know, we're in charge. You as a child in detention center, you know, you're, you're um, under us. So these two guys, and I'll tell you briefly, Dr. Larry Brentro was a PhD student and he became fascinated with a guy by the name of Harry Barath that would, who's since passed away, who would take these really difficult children off the reservation into his home and create miracles of change. And he was an ex-Marine. So they got together and they just dove in and said, what happens with Marines that you take all these guys that don't care about each other initially. And then after an experience, they would give their life for each other. And so he really, you know, they dove down into it. They developed this model called the positive peer culture. So Brentro took, and this was in the uh, mid 1900s. So I think 1946, 1950. And they started to go around to institutional settings that were having high rates of riots and just terrible institutional settings, mainly public mental health and said, give us your, your setting and let us impose the strength based where we empower the kids to be agents of change they're their brother's keeper and give us a shot and so they did that in the united states you know the, the restraints would go down their uh you know every metric their sustainable outcomes would go up um and then they started in in europe and they started to implement that sort of model so that's a brief um, statement about a program that, in my opinion, has changed the way that we treat adolescents in the United States and, in, in a sense, throughout 
throughout the world. Um, and these guys, I had the opportunity, Andy, to have the founder, uh, Dr. Brentro, come out uh, before I opened the academy and said, your model is what I've been practicing since I opened my private practice in 91. And in 96, I've always used young people to help inspire and empower other young people. And I believe that every young person has value and that we have to show up in a place of respect and unconditional regard. Will you let me use your model in my residential therapeutic boarding school? And he said, well, I don't know. And I had a, a I was working full time and it's just me and my wife as the owners. Um, and so I put together every dime I had and I brought him out and he spent four days with us and he said, you got it. Your philosophy and value system about how you regard kids is perfectly in line with mine. And I felt honored because two years later he had me come out and present at his symposium and what he wanted me to present on is had his 12-step recovery perfectly aligned with the principles of the positive peer culture. Okay. So, so it's got a whole, whole bunch of steps, Andy, and I won't go over that. That would take me hours, but it's yeah. a model. But the basic model is that if we as staff understand how to build culture and respect and honor kids, that they will rise to the occasion. Okay. So... In, I'm sure it sounds very effective. It sounds very theoretical. So let me peel the onion back one, one more time because I, I've witnessed and I understand that peers will govern each other and respect each other more than a, per, a parent or an authority, which is why parents and kids sometimes have trouble, you know, getting along. Um, but um, at the same time, if you've got a bunch of troubled kids together who were all of a sudden given the given the keys to the car or given you know give give you know how, what is what is it where's the light bulb that comes on or where is it where's the framework that actually allows them to look inward and find that inner strength to actually be able to do that and maybe give me an example so it's a great question so you know and it really is I think sometimes it's misunderstood that for sure that it's given them the keys to the kingdom. But, but, but what happens is everybody in our organization has to be invested in recognizing that kids are capable. If we create the structure, for instance, I'll give you an example, Andy. One of the tenets of the positive peer culture is a group guided interaction. That's not, you know, that's one of the, the primary founding principles. So these are groups where staff are, are present and they're trained in the format, but the group will sort of go around and say, who's struggling the most right now and what is your struggle? So our community is built on, into four smaller communities called milieus, right? So the milieus will get together and a kid may be, you know, they, they vote on whoever needs that two-hour group. I'm Patrick. And, you know, just making this up. And I found out last week that my best friend overdosed and died. And I want to give up. 
I just want to quit. Like, what's the use? This literally kind of just happened. Right. Like, what's the use? What's it? any of it matter? And so the group will say, hey, I think Patrick needs the group the most. And then the staff really use a, a, a model of wrapping around that kid. But we really empower the kids in that group to help elevate the conversation so that they're acting in accordance with how do I help this child the best? We have accountability. We don't let the kids hold each other accountable. There's been some um, kind of misrepresentation of the positive peer culture and that comes from the original founders when we met. So kids don't ever really hold each other accountable. We just really encourage them. We do intense three-day trainings on how to show up in a way for each other that's empathic. So what I say, Andy, and, and I think your question is, is really good, is I say to every parent that, you know, before they look at us, the positive peer culture is a sloppy, a sloppy method of behavioral change. You know, we're not doing a token economy, a kid cusses and we put them in detention. None of that happens. If, if I walk by a picnic table and two kids are war storing, which is typical, you know, Hey, yep. man, I got supply. I was having a great time. Then I'm not going to come in like gangbusters and say, hey, dude, you just got a demerit because that's not how we act on this campus. Later on, I'm probably going to ask one of the upper levels. We have a level system, Andy. I'm going to ask one of the upper levels. Hey, man, how did you how did that work for you? You know, letting those guys talk about, you know, getting high. How had that work? Well, it didn't work at all. I started to have cravings that, OK. So I wonder, you know, why you let it go on. I'm just curious about that. So we're really constantly sort of forming and helping support the positive peer culture. And we have accountability. Obviously, we have staff involvement. So we don't give, as you say, you know, which is understandable. We don't give them the keys to the car. We keep the keys, but we just help organize around how they can most effectively drive that car. Good, good analogy there. Okay, appreciate that. So, so um, one of the things that's kind of unique, I think, that we haven't touched on also about the way that you uh, and your team execute is that you're family-based, not a corporate entity, right? So you're certainly in it to make money and, and to have a career, but like you said at the beginning, you got inspired in the juvenile court system uh, to, to have a mission to help kids. So what, what would you say is, you know, um, you know, uh, differentiating about, you know, having you and your family run this as opposed to it being owned by somebody else or run by somebody else? Well, I, you know, thank you for that. I think one of the things that I would say as a general principle that 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 many, 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 many years ago, most of these uh, places that help young people were people that, um, you know, definitely had a mission. They felt inspired. It wasn't, you know, a profitable endeavor. Um, so having in any organization, and I'm not here to say that if it's corporate owned, it can't be a good program because I don't believe that. I think it's just about leadership. And I am proud and pleased that 
you know, my philosophy, again, I started in public mental health for 12 years. I used to sit um, in homes with kids. I was really invested in helping kids get out of gangs early on in the 80s. I, I felt compelled to help those young people. And so I've always valued young people and always saw them as capable. So the leadership has to believe that. And I am proud to say that my daughter's a social worker. She was going into special ed, started to work in those groups with me and said, dad, the light bulbs are going off with these kids. Nothing else has worked. Can I join you? Come on. Okay. It's hard work. My son was headed to the CIA and FBI. Um, honestly, three masters. He's, he's got a master's in law and, you know, he started working for me to get through college and, and said, you know, to see these kids like, like come into their own and, and realize the full potential of their life. We we're golfing one day, just been accepted to, to the FBI. And he said, uh, dad has been a life dream of mine. Can I stay? And I started crying and I said, I've never asked you to stay because I wanted to realize, you to realize your dream. Right. And, and I said, but of course you can. I love you. And I think you're an agent of change because he was taking our kids on international trips, Andy. And then my youngest son was in corporate America, rising up the ladder, making great money. He's, he's just phenomenal. And once again, he says, when I look at corporate America compared to our, how much we all care about the people we serve, and how personal it is when I, when I take in a kid, man, it's, you know, it's like my own, you know, like I really take the responsibility of that on. Um, so I do think that this, this, I hate to say industry, but this business did start as a family owned and operated endeavor, right. You know, to help young people find a better way or clinicians and, you know, they're, so I, 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 you know, I, again, it's not for me to criticize or disparage anybody. I don't think that's my right, but I do feel good about, you know, being family owned and operated and that if somebody wants to talk to me, they don't have to call Las Vegas and figure out who, you know, a corporate entity in Las Vegas to figure out who's in charge of the program in North Carolina or wherever that they can call me as the owner and founder and say, Hey, can I, can I, can you help me? Like, I'm confused about this and can you help me? So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it does. You know, typically, you know, one of the things in the businesses I've been in over my, over my career is just being nimble and responsive, you know, and if, you, if somebody calls you up and you can make a decision rather than having to go through three layers of management, um, you know, especially when it's a timely decision relating to a child, that's kind of an important thing, I would think. Yeah, like this would be an example, right? So my son, uh, real briefly, went on a thing in college called the Journey of Hope, and they used to help uh, build uh, things for kids with disabilities. So they'd go on bikes across the country. And um, so when he started working for me, he said, Dad, I want to do a similar thing with the kids, but I want to take them to international orphanages and I want to help rebuild them. I suspect, Andy, if I had to go through a corporate entity to get approval for that, they would say you're insane. Right. You're taking 16 year old kids that have substance abuse and mental health, flying them across the world 
you know, working in, in settings that are very unpredictable, there is no way we're going to sign off on that. And we've done it for 17 years, except for the year in the pandemic. Sure. And it has been like, honestly, man, like for kids that go on that trip, they come back and they see the world in a different way. Sure. Like it changes oh. their life. International exposure is amazing, no matter what your um, age and abilities. Um, so thanks. I think we've gotten a decent idea about your program and what makes you and, and your team and, and your value proposition unique. It sounds, it sounds great. Um, moving over to some industry trends, you know, can, can you tell me how, you know, some of the standardization that they're trying to achieve working through some of the industry trade groups, um, state laws, some of the noise in the system about some controversies and things like that, how you, you've been in this industry for a long time, how you view the, the good and the bad. Yeah. And, and I'll be brief on this because I know that we have limited time, but, you know, I was talking to a parent the other day and, and I, I said that as a clinician and I'm a licensed clinician, the thing I'm most excited about in the last 30 years is the evolution of treatment for kids. You know, I'm not as, as, as honed into the evolution of the treatment of adults. And one of the things that I'm the most excited about is when I first started, we really only had um, residential as an option for young people that were really in trouble with mental health and substance abuse. And I felt like there are some limits in that approach not here to say that residential, you know, brick and mortar type building is not helpful. I'm just saying that I felt like, you know, I, I would love to see other options. So in the last 25, 30 years, this beautiful thing has occurred called wilderness therapy. And it's just that it's not outward bound. It's not boot camps. Those did exist back in my early childhood as a clinician and, and healer kind of. So the industry has become sophisticated in how they deliver mental health and substance abuse treatment in nature. And again, you can study it 50 years, 100 years, nobody debates how powerful nature is as a healer. Now let's talk about standards. So each state is sort of governed differently. There's some things that are being looked at on a federal level, which I applaud on how to make standards across the states. In Arizona, we have, uh, we have Department of Health Services, which, you know, they're pretty intense, Andy. They come on our campus, they randomly pull uh, files, they talk to parents, they talk to kids. They wanna make sure that you're pro providing a standard of care that meets you know, sort of a evidence-based practice. Then many programs are inviting joint commission onto their campus to say, hey, let's go one step further. The state has these guidelines that are rigid. They, they monitor the temperature of the water that comes out of our faucet to make sure that it's at the right temperature so the kids don't burn their hands. So, and then joint commission comes in and they're a hospital-based accreditation body. 
and they come in and they add a different layer of accountability. Spend five days on your campus, talk to your students. I, I love that trend. More programs are inviting them in. It's expensive, you know, um, and they're adding some layers. So I do think the field has absolutely evolved. And I think in anything that works with young people, it breaks my heart to hear that adults have let them down in the past. You know, I, I am um, Catholic, I wouldn't say, you know, uh, and the Catholic Church saved my life. I mean, I just got to tell you, but to hear some of the things that have happened, it doesn't overshadow all the good that they've done. But whenever I hear of the bad actors from 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or kids that were in any way harmed as a result of trusting adults, you know, breaks my heart. But I don't, I know that in every situation where you work with kids, my, my, my goal is, and is to always evolve. So you just get better. You just get better. And you always show up in that space that values them and respects them. And I think um, we value kids more as a community. There was a time where we didn't, you know, that, that, that people didn't care you know, how programs treated kids and they felt like they just had to, you know, sort of be in their face and break them down. That's not my belief. Um, and so I think we've evolved on how we value kids. And I like that evolution. And I, I want each and every program that serves children to be accountable at the highest levels. And if we can get some standards that, that reach every single state and union, and their uniform and their best practices, I, I applaud that. I applaud that. Excellent. Um, what would it take to get to that, do you think? Dialogue, you know, it, it takes Andy and understanding. So it takes communication, right? I think we're all sort of feeling like if we could just talk to each other. Yeah. So let the experts in the field help the legislative branch figure out, you know, kind of the best, best, the best research-based best practices the program should, you know, should uh, organize around. Let me give you an example, if I can, if we've got a second. If I come in as a legislator and I say, and I don't understand the treatment of kids, and I say, well, it's a good idea to make uh, the kids should always have access to a phone to call their parents any time of day or night. Let's just say, you know, that sounds good, right? That way, you know, we can um, always give kids a vehicle to a phone and nothing bad could happen. But is that, you know, you ha have a daughter, you know, is that really practical if a kid's in the middle of group and we're doing some deep work and, and he or she said, hey, I need to stop this group to go make this phone call. Would that be a practical evidence-based practice to place on a program as a stipulation? And the answer is no. So I think you have to take treatment professionals and we have them both at a federal, state and local level and get together with the legislatures that are, are passing policy and open up dialogue. How can we work together to create legislation that accomplishes best practices 
and keeps kids safe. Does that make sense? It does. And, and um, you know, it's a, when you're talking about legislative issues, it's, it's a, it's a, um, you know, longer term bureaucratic um, initiative, but it just takes effort and time and value. Um, and, it, and it's been moving in that direction. And I like how you described, you know, some of the past controversies and how things were more tough love and dis disciplined that may have been appropriate at that time. And, you know, and uh, may have had a positive effect on many, but not all. And, um, you know, how things like you know, on your website, you say we incorporate an element of fun in everything we do, you know, having the having the positive peer culture and the equine therapy and, you know, all the positive things as opposed to, you know, based upon kids having uh, ability and desire to do well, as opposed to having screwed up and needing to be reprimanded is just a very different way of doing things that I think, you know, is more effective and, and, uh, and, and I'm glad to hear that you know, you believe that as well. Um, so one last thing before we wrap up or two last things. One is just, um, you know, forgetting about your specific program with substance abuse or other co-occurring disorders. If, you know, given COVID, given social media, given everything that's going on and the challenges of parenting today, if you were going to talk to a parent, you know, uh, somebody was going to, we just had a new baby <laughs> and said, you know, what are the keys to successful parenting, you know, in this day and age compared, you know, what, what, what's the top thing you would recommend? Yeah, let me, and I want to pivot back for a minute and then I'll, I'll go forward because I know we're running out of time, but I don't want to make it sound like the Academy at Imbalance is a summer camp, uh, you know, it's a difficult program. We do 20 hours of 22 hours of therapy a week. We're asking kids to go deeply inside. Obviously, they're out of their home environment. They're away from their drug using subculture. So I, I would say it's a very difficult program. But we, you know, our value system is that we're going to care about you and we're going to treat you with respect every step of the way. And we're going to try and create fun and we're going to try and create change. So good medicine Yep. Sometimes creates discomfort. So I just want to, you know, be Fair clear enough. that I don't want a parent to go away and say, hey, this is a summer camp. No, it's an no, intense no. experience. Yeah. Now, what I would tell parents is that, you know, I just did a workshop called Contracting for Success. From an early age, Andy, start to have conversations with your kids about peer pressure and drugs and alcohol. And I want to and stay informed about the trends. I just talked about this, about the trend in Xanax use and how that was promulgated by, um, you know, really rappers. And a lot of parents hadn't even heard that. So Xanax is a very popular drug today. And it's not just kids that use drugs that are at risk, it's all kids. Yeah. So they come out of this pandemic and they're depressed and they're socially anxious. And then some of their favorite um, entertainers are talking about how cool Xanax is and now they're you know they're they're open to it so the other day I had lunch with my uh, 13 year old granddaughter 
and I call it contracting with for success. As her grandparent, I set up a contract that kind of talks about staying away from the big decisions that will affect her life. And in in return for that, now obviously not all people can do that. I'm going to help her buy a car when she's 16. So I started having conversations with her, Andy, and my own children when they were eight. You know, what do you do when the kid next you ask if you want to smoke a cigarette? What before, do you do if the kid before next before they before they're while they're impressionable, where they're young enough to be influenced in a positive way, so they have those filters. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then with the social media, Andy, you've got to stay involved. You've got to put filters in place. You've got to put safeguards in place. I cannot say enough. And if you don't understand the technology, hire somebody that does. Hire a young college student to come in and set up safeguards in your house for social media. If you, you know, and I'm sure you have watched The Social Dilemma, yep. it's frightening how young people are sucked into social media and yet we're just like telephones and television. And of course the basic things is open communication, but you can't start that when your child's in trouble. You have to start that at an early age. So as a general principle, be involved with your kid, man, and be involved with his peer group. In my neighborhood and I came, you know, I mean, and I'm not recommending this, Andy, I'm 61. So in my neighborhood, my neighbors were allowed to spank me. You know, we, we grew up in a community where we would look after each other. Now, again, I'm not advocating for spanking. I'm making a point that, that my parents, you know, they talk to other parents. We don't do that today. Sure. Know your kids' friends, but more importantly, align with their parents. Right. And, and create a community so that you can see what's going on in each other's house. Right. Does, does that make sense? It does. Most important, I think, is be attuned to your kid. So uh, yeah, we, be, we're, be, be attuned. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to wrap up now. Uh, great information. You're very passionate. Um, and um, and uh, I know parents will benefit from having heard all, all you had to share today. Can you share where the, where is best uh, for them to look and find out more about InBalance Academy? Yeah, I think that if they just, you know, if they, uh, if they go to our website, and you probably have that in front of you, um, I do. I am embarrassed to say I don't have it in front of me, but if they, uh, do you have that in front of you? It's inbalanceacademy.com, as you would imagine. Thank you. So I, I should know that, but uh, I'm the visionary and creator. I don't uh, do well with the technology. And, and that's, you know, that website was built by us, by our family. It wasn't built by some big sort of, you know, firm that's trying to misrepresent what we do. And so I think it's a really good way to look at who we are. And then it has a phone number that they can call, which is my wife. Um, she is our admissions director and a beautiful human being that cares, you know, is a parent of three kids and seven grandchildren. So she is very empathic. Okay. Well, thanks so much again, Patrick. It was great having you on the show. Um, 
parents and listeners, please take care of your children and continue to empower yourself with information at Parents Journey. Thanks, Andy.